Section 11 of The Coming Race This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mary Rohde. The Coming Race by Edward George Bulwer-Lytton. Chapter 17 The Vrilya, being excluded from all sight of the heavenly bodies, and having no other difference between night and day than that which they deem it convenient to make for themselves, do not, of course, arrive at their divisions of time by the same process that we do. But I found it easy, by the aid of my watch, which I luckily had about me, to compute their time with great nicety. I reserve for a future work on the science and literature of the Vrilya, should I live to complete it, all details as to the manner in which they arrive at their rotation of time, and content myself here with saying that in point of duration their year differs very slightly from ours, but that the divisions of their year are by no means the same. Their day, including what we call night, consists of twenty hours of our time instead of twenty-four, and, of course, their year comprises the correspondent increase in the number of days by which it is summed up. They subdivide the twenty hours of their day thus. Eight hours, called the silent hours, for repose. Eight hours, called the earnest time, for the pursuits and occupations of life. And four hours, called the easy time, with which what I may term their day closes, allotted to festivities, sport, recreation, or family converse, according to their several tastes and inclinations. Note, for the sake of convenience, I adopt the word hours, days, years, etc., in any general reference to subdivisions of time among the Vrilya those terms but loosely corresponding, however, with such subdivisions. End note. But, in truth, out of doors there is no night. They maintain, both in the streets and in the surrounding country, to the limits of their territory, the same degree of light at all hours. Only within doors they lower it to a soft twilight during the silent hours. They have a great horror of perfect darkness, and their lights are never wholly extinguished. On occasions of festivity they continue the duration of full light, but equally keep note of the distinction between night and day by mechanical contrivances which answer the purpose of our clocks and watches. They are very fond of music and it is by music that these chronometers strike the principal division of time. At every one of their hours, during the day, the sounds coming from all the timepieces in their public buildings, and caught up, as it were, by those of houses or hamlets scattered amidst the landscapes without the city, have an effect singularly sweet, and yet singularly solemn. But during the silent hours, these sounds are so subdued as to be only faintly heard by a waking ear. They have no change of seasons, and, at least on the territory of this tribe, 
the atmosphere seems to me very equable warm as that of an italian summer and humid rather than dry in the forenoon usually very still but at times invaded by strong blasts from the rocks that made the borders of their domain but time is the same to them for sowing or reaping as in the golden isles of the ancient poets at the same moment you see the younger plants in blade or bud the older in ear or fruit all fruit-bearing plants however after fruitage either shed or change the color of their leaves but that which interested me most in reckoning up their divisions of time was the ascertainment of the average duration of life amongst them i found on minute inquiry that this very considerably exceeded the term allotted to us on the upper earth what seventy years are to us one hundred years are to them nor is this the only advantage they have over us in longevity for as few among us attain to the age of seventy so on the contrary few among them die before the age of one hundred and they enjoy a general degree of health and vigour which makes life itself a blessing even to the last various causes contribute to this result the absence of all alcoholic stimulants temperance in food more especially perhaps a serenity of mind undisturbed by anxious occupations and eager passions they are not tormented by our avarice or our ambition they appear perfectly indifferent even to the desire of fame they are capable of great affection but their love shows itself in a tender and cheerful complacence and while forming their happiness seems rarely if ever to constitute their woe as the gi is sure only to marry where she herself fixes her choice and as here not less than above ground it is the female on whom the happiness of home depends so the gi having chosen the mate she prefers to all others is lenient to his faults consults his humours and does her best to secure his attachment the death of a beloved one is of course with them as with us a cause for sorrow but not only is death with them so much more rare before that age in which it becomes a release but when it does occur the survivor takes much more consolation than i am afraid the generality of us do in the certainty of reunion in another and yet happier life all these causes then concur to the healthful and enjoyable longevity though no doubt much also must be owing to hereditary organization according to their records however in those earlier stages of their society when they lived in communities resembling ours agitated by fierce competition their lives were considerably shorter and their maladies more numerous and grave they themselves say that the duration of life too has increased and is still on the increase since their discovery of the invigorating and medicinal properties of rill applied for remedial purposes they have few professional and regular practitioners of medicine 
and these are chiefly jayet who especially if widowed and childless find great delight in the healing art and even undertake surgical operations in those cases required by accident or more rarely by disease they have their diversions and entertainments and during the easy time of their day they are wont to assemble in great numbers for those winged sports in the air which i have already described they have also public halls for music and even theatres at which are performed pieces that appear to me somewhat to resemble the plays of the chinese dramas that are thrown back into distant times for their events and personages in which all classic unities are outrageously violated and the hero in one scene a child in the next is an old man and so forth these plays are of very ancient composition and their stories cast in remote times they appeared to me very dull on the whole but were relieved by startling mechanical contrivances and a kind of farcical broad humour and detached passages of great vigour and power expressed in language highly poetical but somewhat overcharged with metaphor and trope in fine they seem to me very much what the plays of shakespeare seemed to a parisian in the time of louis the fifteenth or perhaps to an englishman in the reign of charles the second the audience of which the jayet constituted the chief portion appeared to enjoy greatly the representation of these dramas which for so sedate and majestic a race of females surprised me till i observed that all the performers were under the age of adolescence and conjectured truly that the mothers and sisters came to please their children and brothers i have said that these dramas are of great antiquity no new plays indeed no imaginative works sufficiently important to survive their immediate day appear to have been composed for several generations in fact though there is no lack of new publications and they have even what may be called newspapers these are chiefly devoted to mechanical science reports of new inventions announcements respecting various details of business in short to practical matters sometimes a child writes a little tale of adventure or a young gi vents her amorous hopes or fears in a poem but these effusions are of very little merit and are seldom read except by children and maiden jayet the most interesting works of a purely literary character are those of explorations and travels into other regions of this nether-world which are generally written by young emigrants and are read with great avidity by the relations and friends they have left behind i could not help expressing to apalin my surprise that a community in which mechanical science had made so marvellous a progress and in which intellectual civilization had exhibited itself in realizing those objects for the happiness of the people which the political philosophers above ground had after ages of struggle pretty generally agreed to consider unattainable visions 
should nevertheless be so wholly without a contemporaneous literature, despite the excellence to which culture had brought a language at once so rich and simple, vigorous and musical. My host replied, Do you not perceive that a literature such as you mean would be wholly incompatible with that perfection of social and political felicity at which you do us the honour to think we have arrived? We have at last, after centuries of struggle, settled into a form of government with which we are content, and in which, as we allow no differences of rank, and no honours are paid to administrators distinguishing them from others, there is no stimulus given to individual ambition. No one would read works advocating theories that involved any political or social change, and therefore no one writes them. If now and then an on feels himself dissatisfied with our tranquil mode of life, he does not attack it, he goes away. Thus all that part of literature, and to judge by the ancient books in our public libraries, it was once a very large part, which relates to speculative theories on society, is become utterly extinct. Again, formerly there was a vast deal written respecting the attributes and essence of the all-good, and the arguments for and against a future state. But now we all recognize two facts, that there is a divine being, and there is a future state, and we all equally agree that if we wrote our fingers to the bone, we could not throw any light upon the nature and conditions of that future state, or quicken our apprehensions of the attributes and essence of that divine being. Thus another part of literature has become also extinct, happily for our race. For in the time when so much was written on subjects which no one could determine, people seemed to live in a perpetual state of quarrel and contention. So, too, a vast part of our ancient literature consists of historical records of wars and revolutions during the times when the Anna lived in large and turbulent societies, each seeking aggrandizement at the expense of the other. You see our serene mode of life now. Such it has been for ages. We have no events to chronicle. What more of us can be said than that they were born, they were happy, they died? Coming next to that part of literature which is more under the control of the imagination, such as what we call glaubsila, or colloquially glaubs, and you call poetry, the reasons for its decline amongst us are abundantly obvious. We find by referring to the great masterpieces in that department of literature, which we all still read with pleasure, but of which none would tolerate imitations, that they consist in their portraiture of passions which we no longer experience, ambition, vengeance, unhallowed love, the thirst for warlike renown, and such like. The old poets lived in an atmosphere impregnated with these passions, and felt vividly what they expressed glowingly. 
no one can express such passions now for no one can feel them or meet with any sympathy in his readers if he did again the old poetry has a main element in its dissection of those complex mysteries of human character which conduce to abnormal vices and crimes or lead to signal and extraordinary virtues but our society having got rid of temptations to any prominent vices and crimes has necessarily rendered the moral average so equal that there are no very salient virtues without its ancient food of strong passions vast crimes heroic excellences poetry therefore is if not actually starved to death reduced to a very meagre diet there is still the poetry of description description of rocks and trees and waters and common household life and our young jayet weave much of this insipid kind of composition into their love verses such poetry said i might surely be made very charming and we have critics amongst us who consider it a higher kind than that which depicts the crimes or analyzes the passions of man at all events poetry of the inspired kind you mention is a poetry that nowadays commands more readers than any other among the people i have left above ground possibly but then i suppose the writers take great pains with the language they employ and devote themselves to the culture and polish of words and rhythms of an art certainly they do all great poets do that though the gift of poetry may be inborn the gift requires as much care to make it available as a block of metal does to be made into one of your engines and doubtless your poets have some incentive to bestow all those pains upon such verbal prettinesses well i presume their instinct of song would make them sing as the bird does but to cultivate the song into verbal or artificial prettiness probably does need an inducement from without and our poets find it in the love of fame perhaps now and then in the want of money precisely so but in our society we attach fame to nothing which man in that moment of his duration which is called life can perform we should soon lose that equality which constitutes the felicitous essence of our commonwealth if we selected any individual for preeminent praise preeminent praise would confer preeminent power and the moment it were given evil passions now dormant would awake other men would immediately covet praise then would arise envy and with envy hate and with hate calumny and persecution our history tells us that most of the poets and most of the writers who in the old time were favored with the greatest praise were also assailed by the greatest vituperation and even on the whole rendered very unhappy partly by the attacks of jealous rivals partly by the diseased mental constitution 
which an acquired sensitiveness to praise and to blame tends to engender. As for the stimulus of want, in the first place, no man in our community knows the goad of poverty, and secondly, if he did, almost every occupation would be more lucrative than writing. Our public libraries contain all the books of the past which time has preserved. Those books, for the reasons above stated, are infinitely better than any can write nowadays, and they are open to all to read without cost. We are not such fools as to pay for reading inferior books when we can read superior books for nothing. With us, novelty has an attraction, and a new book, if bad, is read when an old book, though good, is neglected. Novelty, to barbarous states of society struggling in despair for something better, has no doubt an attraction, denied to us, who see nothing to gain in novelties. But after all, it is observed by one of our great authors four thousand years ago, that he who studies old books will always find in them something new, and he who reads new books will always find in them something old. But to return to the question you have raised, there being then amongst us no stimulus to painstaking labor, whether in desire of fame or in pressure of want, such as have the poetic temperament, no doubt vent it in song, as you say, the bird sings. But for lack of elaborate culture it fails of an audience, and, failing of an audience, dies out of itself amidst the ordinary avocations of life. But how is it that these discouragements to the cultivation of literature do not operate against that of science? Your question amazes me. The motive to science is the love of truth, apart from all consideration of fame, and the science with us, too, is devoted almost solely to practical uses, essential to our social conversation and the comforts of our daily life. No fame is asked by the inventor, and none is given to him. He enjoys an occupation congenial to his tastes, and needing no wear and tear of the passions. Man must have exercise for his mind as well as body, and continuous exercise, rather than violent, is best for both. Our most ingenious cultivators of science are, as a general rule, the longest lived and the most free from disease. Painting is an amusement to many, but the art is not what it was in former times, when the great painters in our various communities vied with each other for the prize of a golden crown, which gave them a social rank equal to that of the kings under whom they lived. You will thus doubtless have observed in our archaeological department how superior in point of art the pictures were several thousand years ago. Perhaps it is because music is, in reality, more allied to science than it is to poetry, that of all the pleasurable arts, music is that which flourishes the most amongst us. Still, even in music, the absence of stimulus in praise or fame 
has served to prevent any great superiority of one individual over another and we rather excel in choral music with the aid of our vast mechanical instruments in which we make great use of the agency of water than in single performers Note, this may remind the student of nero's invention of a musical machine by which water was made to perform the part of an orchestra and on which he was employed when the conspiracy against him broke out End note. we have had scarcely any original composer for some ages our favorite airs are very ancient in substance but have admitted many complicated variations by inferior though ingenious musicians are there no political societies among the ana which are animated by those passions subjected to those crimes and admitting those disparities in condition in intellect and in morality which the state of your tribe or indeed of the vrilia generally has left behind in its progress to perfection if so among such societies perhaps poetry and her sister arts still continue to be honored and to improve there are such societies in remote regions but we do not admit them within the pale of civilized communities we scarcely even give them the name of ana and certainly not that of rilia they are savages living chiefly in that low stage of being kumposh tending necessarily to its own hideous dissolution in gleknas their wretched existence is passed in perpetual contest and perpetual change when they do not fight with their neighbors they fight among themselves they are divided into sections which abuse plunder and sometimes murder each other and on the most frivolous points of difference than would be unintelligible to us if we had not read history and seen that we too have passed through the same early state of ignorance and barbarism any trifle is sufficient to set them together by the ears they pretend to be all equals and the more they have struggled to be so by removing old distinctions and starting afresh the more glaring and intolerable the disparity becomes because nothing in hereditary affections and associations is left to soften the one naked distinction between the many who have nothing and the few who have much of course the many hate the few but without the few they could not live the many are always assailing the few sometimes they exterminate the few but as soon as they have done so a new few starts out of the many and is harder to deal with than the old few for where societies are large and competition to have something is the predominant fever there must be always many losers and few gainers in short they are savages groping their way in the dark towards some gleam of light and would demand our commiseration for their infirmities if like all savages they did not provoke their own destruction by their arrogance and cruelty can you imagine that creatures of this kind 
armed only with such miserable weapons as you may see in our museum of antiquities clumsy iron tubes charged with saltpetre have more than once threatened with destruction a tribe of the Rilia, which dwells nearest to them because they say they have thirty millions of population and that tribe may have fifty thousand if the latter do not accept their notions of soksek money-getting on some trading principles which they have the impudence to call a law of civilization but thirty millions of population are formidable odds against fifty thousand my host stared at me astonished stranger said he you could not have heard me say that this threatened tribe belongs to the vrilia and it only waits for these savages to declare war in order to commission some half a dozen small children to sweep away their whole population at these words i felt a thrill of horror recognizing much more affinity with the savages than i did with the vrilia and remembering all i had said in praise of the glorious american institutions which apalin stigmatized as kumposh recovering my self-possession i asked if there were modes of transit by which i could safely visit this temerarious and remote people you can travel with safety by vril agency either along the ground or amid the air throughout all the range of the communities with which we are allied and akin but i cannot vouch for your safety in barbarous nations governed by different laws from ours nations indeed so benighted that there are among them large numbers who actually live by stealing from each other and one could not with safety in the silent hours even leave the doors of one's own house open here our conversation was interrupted by the entrance of tai who came to inform us that he having been deputed to discover and destroy the enormous reptile which i had seen on my first arrival had been on the watch for it ever since his visit to me and had begun to suspect that my eyes had deceived me or that the creature had made its way through the cavities within the rocks to the wild regions in which dwelt its kindred race when it gave evidences of its whereabouts by a great devastation of the herbage bordering one of the lakes and said tai i feel sure that within that lake it is now hiding so turning to me i thought it might amuse you to accompany me to see the way we destroy such unpleasant visitors as i looked at the face of the young child and called to mind the enormous size of the creature he proposed to exterminate i felt myself shudder with fear for him and perhaps fear for myself if i accompanied him in such a chase but my curiosity to witness the destructiveness effects of the boasted vril and my unwillingness to lower myself in the eyes of an infant by betraying apprehensions of personal safety prevailed over my first impulse accordingly i thanked tai for his courteous consideration for my amusement 
and professed my willingness to set out with him on so diverting an enterprise. End of chapter 17